So tonight I want to I want to talk about um, probably the, the biggest idol in the in the human heart, the greatest uh, problem that we have as human beings: fear of man. Fear of man is an idol um, we could call self-preservation, and self-preservation is just the opposite of faith in God. And one of the places that it's most clearly laid out is in the, the letter to the Philippians. And if I would give Philippians a, a phrase for what it's about, it'd be propagation unto resurrection. <laughs> or uh, laying down your life in the confidence that God will raise you in the end. I'm actually going to stand up unless we get more comfortable changing my mind right now in the moment. But in Philippians, it's just four quick chapters, and Paul's locked up at 61 to 63 AD. He was two years locked up on house arrest, prison, under Roman guard. And while he was under Roman guard, um, he wrote Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, and maybe even Hebrews, from my guesses. And uh, in that time, he was writing to the Philippian church in Philippi which was a pretty healthy church. It grown fast. It started really slow when he went there. It was just Lydia. Um, Lydia was a, a Gentile lady that was hanging out on the side of the river with the Jewish people because there wasn't a synagogue and they were worshiping on the side of the river. And Lydia was the house of peace that Paul reached. And next thing you know, a church started in Philippi and it, it grew strong and fast. And in Philippians... Chapter 1, Paul says something very interesting in verse 27 through 30. Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He's really concerned about that word gospel throughout this whole letter. The good news. And he says, in no way alarmed, in other words, gripped with any kind of fear, by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So when he's, what he's saying is, when you have opponents, it's not a good thing for them. But don't be alarmed because it proves that you have salvation. This is to be expected. And then he, he clarifies what he means in the very next verse. He says, for to you it's been granted. That's the word charis, charis grace, uh, gift. He says, for you it's been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So he actually says suffering is a gift. Suffering is a gift that reminds us that we hope in God who raises the dead. And Paul said that in, in 2 Corinthians 1. He said, when we suffer, we gain comfort from God. And the comfort we gain from God is the comfort that we give to you when you suffer. Yes. If you patiently endure suffering. Then we can come alongside as brothers and comfort you with the same comfort God gave us while we were suffering. For we have the sentence of death in us. That we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. 
I mean, that's a pretty uh, drastic statement. It's a pretty bold statement. But when it comes down to our faith in Christ, the less we hold on to our life, the more we'll find it, it you know, the more um, prepared we are to find it in the end and to, and to lose it now. The more confidence we have in God is in direct degree to how we're letting go of self-preservation. I love what uh, G.K. Chesterton said. He said, Jesus promised his disciples three things. They'd be absurdly happy, completely fearless, and always in trouble. <laughs> Complete, or absurdly happy, completely fearless, and always in trouble. That's what he promised his disciples. And that's basically what Paul is saying here is, don't be alarmed when you get in trouble. When you find opposition, when people don't understand, when people even backlash. Because it's been granted to you not only to believe in Messiah, but that the proof of you really believing in Him is if you're ready to endure suffering. So God gave us a little gift called suffering so that we don't trust in ourselves, but in Him who raises the dead. It's a little gift, and it's all over Scripture. And if we were to read through the whole New Testament... One of the most central themes of all of the New Testament is suffering. And the question begs us, why? Well, then, a parallel to life we know Jesus gave is giving birth to a child. Jesus said, when a woman's in labor, it's not fun, it's painful. Demands every fiber of her body. To deliver that baby. And boy, she feels it. There's a tremor from head to toe. Sometimes for hours. But he says, when that baby comes forth, she forgets all about that pain for joy. Uh, I have a wife who's had five, and she's delivered all through the birth canal. No C-section. And I remember a couple times she had a hard pregnancy and a hard labor. And right at first, she's like, ah. Right when out of the, after she had the baby, she's thinking, oh man, I just don't know if my body can do this again. I kid you not, it might, it might have been a few days, and she's like, I can't wait to have another baby. <laughs> it's not drugs, it's just, it's that reality of what Jesus says. He says, there's joy that overcomes because a child's been born. So this age that we're in is under birth pangs ever-increasing until the delivery of the age to come. And so that's the New Testament. The, the New Testament is founded on trembling ground, <laughs> shaky ground that has a bedrock underneath it called hope, and that's a resurrection of our body. But everything shakes above that bedrock of hope. Everything around us is shaking, is what I should say. And even we ourselves are shaking. And, and suffering is an opportunity for everything that can be shaken, to shake, to fall off. So as God graciously increases the tremors on the ground, we as believers should realize that there's less and less we should be holding on to. So that we can really hope on, hold on to our blessed hope. And to hold on to our blessed hope is to let go of any certainties in this life. Things that we see that could quickly diminish and quickly go away. You know, starting with our bank account is the 
biggest, biggest, that's the best place to start. Because money represents self-sustaining, self-preservation, self-sufficiency. That's why Jesus said, if you seek my kingdom and my righteousness, future, he's saying if you press with that goal in mind that my kingdom's coming, that my righteousness will be on the heavens and the earth dwelling here, the new heavens and new earth will have righteousness dwelling. If you look ahead to the restoration of all things and you see that as your blessed hope, you look to that, you live godly in this age in light of that blessed hope, then everything else in this life will start to fade and I'll give you everything you need to endure for food and clothes. Always encourage my wife and my kids as a family, never hold on to clothes and food. Never feel like we've got to hoard food or worry about our clothes. Be willing to give clothes away for people that need it and be willing to share food all the time because God will always provide those. He promised us that. And it's a test for our heart that He only puts those two things there. Now, He's intimate and He is into details where He cares about everything in our life. But He didn't promise to take care of our mortgage. Because there's a time coming where we may need to be tested and the economy collapse is part of our testing. Because God wants everything to be able to crumble and for us to find ourselves still trusting Him. And as human beings, unless He keeps kicking out crutches and props, we won't continue to actually put our trust fully in Him. So suffering is a gift from God that actually sanctifies us. Peter said... The one who suffered death in the flesh is done with sin. No longer to live his life for the lust of man, but for the will of God. That's profound. But what Peter's saying is, when you understand suffering as God's purpose and God's tool, and you submit to it, you learn to be done with sin. You see, the first step toward what we would call suffering is recognizing I don't like, fill in the blank, the sin. And by the Holy Spirit, we learn to put it to death. But we know that for sin that we struggle with, we both like it and hate it at the same time. So the first step of suffering is choosing to hate what we like. That's the process of changing our desires, that God changes. So when we, we like money too much, or we like, you know, luxury too much, and we realize that it's sapping our life in God, it's distracting us, it's weighing us down, it's, it's giving us a drunkenness, and a, in a, a difficulty connecting with God, then we start addressing that as, okay God, I know there's greater pleasure in you, so I'm choosing to let you put this to death, it, it hurts. But that's only the first baby step of suffering. Because... Out of that, your life style starts to change, right? When you start changing your way of living and your desires, they start changing. Then other people start seeing that. And then we can actually share with them why. And we're doing things in a different way. Why are we living a certain way? If they see our life changing like that, they're going to ask us. And that's when we bring up Jesus. 
And when a body of people together learns how to provoke each other to that, like Paul's addressing here, the strength of encouragement and witness with the Holy Spirit giving boldness causes something called provocation. It, it provokes a stir in the community around that gathering of people. And this is what we start to call a corporate witness. But when that corporate witness gets bold and strengthened and courageous enough to actually tell the surrounding community that this is for them too, and it's not just a cult, then people start, well, getting into the scorning, and into the no thanks, that's awkward, or whatever the response may be. But when the community keeps living differently, and when things happen where there's crossover, where you're in a situation where it affects that person's life, how you're living, for instance, like laws being changed, where you can't say that it's wrong to do this or that, and that person gets word that you think that, or you've actually said that, or you believe that, or whatever accusation they can come up with, pretty soon, now you're faced with a deeper level of commitment. Am I ready and willing to lay aside my reputation, not downplay the truth, but actually stand in the face of opposition with love, but be prepared for a greater opposition? And at that point, will we shrink in the fear of man? Or will we come together with the brothers and say, God, give us boldness, like the believers in Acts chapter 4 did. Let's do the foolish thing and get in trouble again. Let's go right back to where we got in trouble. People aren't liking this. God, give us the ability to get in more trouble. And then when you go get in more trouble, pretty soon it can turn into a rage. Then are you still willing to lose your life? Are you really willing to put your life on the chopping block? Do you really believe in the hope of the age to come? And big part of our issue is we don't understand suffering because we don't believe in the resurrection because we have no grid for what the age to come will be. Starting with, we think of it as going to heaven when we die. And then, we think so many things in this life are actually carnal and they're not. You see, it's so deceiving, so deceptive. Because we're not called to, to preserve our life. And we're not called to be living luxurious and indulgent and greedy. But we are called to enjoy this life as human beings. Because we represent our God. And our God shows us that this life that we live isn't to be boring and, uh, um, what's the word? Like, we're not to be monks hidden away, in, away from society. We're to be able to live and enjoy life in society and be self-controlled. We're actually able to, to do entertaining and fun things in a pure way. I don't want to be on the side of, Christians can have fun. <laughs> because that's just a, a silly way of saying, um, we don't want to be weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's more substantial, it's deeper than that is what I'm getting at. Yes. 
I love to play football. You know, what do you love to do? This doesn't mean that this losing our life and being a bold witness and being ready to suffer doesn't mean that we stop doing normal things. In fact, if we do normal things and people oppose us and our reaction is love, that's a witness. I mean, the, the, the persecutions in the, in the book of Acts would scatter disciples, right? But not the apostles. They'd stay in the midst of the persecution. You'd read that in the book of Acts, chapter 8. It says that in the first part of Acts. And they were scattered because of persecutions, but the apostles stayed and they kept ministering. Now, they knew when to run. But Paul, he would run from Lystra and then find a way to sneak back into Lystra. And that's the kind of mindset that we ought to have, is that our hope is home fellowships. That's our, that's our hope for fellowship, is to stay tight in fellowship with each other. So that we can stay tight with Jesus in the fellowship of sufferings. So suffering with Jesus, not just for Jesus, is a key to understanding what in the world are you talking about right now. Because Jesus, as we see Philippians will develop and show us, Jesus suffered alone, so that none of us would have to suffer alone. He is our author, he is our captain, he's our apostle of our faith, he's the leader. He led the way for us to follow so that we could actually suffer with him. Because if suffering is going to make sense, then we have to balance it with what Jesus said. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But, in that burden, in that yoke, with Jesus, you're going to be consumed with what He is passionate about. And what Jesus was passionate about was His passion. And His passion was to lay His life down. And Jesus faced fear at the point of death. And didn't submit to it. The Father, if there's another way, I'll take it. But I submit. And He led the way for us to realize how to overcome fear. And Hebrews 5 speaks of it. He's, he learned obedience and he, he prayed and he was heard because of his fear of God. So the way to overcome the fear of man is the fear of God. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. But fear him who can throw body and soul in hell. The fear of the Lord is the only hope to break the baby fears of men. It's really seeing how big God is, how trustworthy God is, how worth it is to just throw all the chips in one basket, all the eggs in one basket before God. Because the fear of man is like a cobweb. If you just push through, you realize there's nothing to it, but a little thin veneer. It's nothing. The fear of God is pure enlightening the eyes. The fear of God gives confidence and refuge. The fear of God is the treasure of wisdom and knowledge of God. The fear of God is simply being back in the garden. It's the idea of walking with God in the cool of the day. You have no other care or need in the world. You'll do anything. You'll live radically and free because God can raise you from the dead. And if God can defeat death, then what do you have to fear? Amen. Come on, man. He defeated death.
for those who've been in slavery to it all their lives, because the devil had that power of the fear of death. But through the cross, Jesus, through his resurrection, gave us the hope for us to set our eyes on the, the God who raised the dead, the firstborn from the dead, to bring many sons to glory. Because he defeated the power of death, so that we don't have to be a slave to fear anymore, because in the end, death will be swallowed up in victory. So Jesus exhorts us, so prepare yourself, arm yourself with the same mindset Christ had. He suffered death in the flesh, and if you suffer death in the flesh, you'll be done with sin. So what did Jesus do? What did he say? He went on to say, if there is therefore any encouragement in Christ, <laughs> after talking about believing for his sake, this Philippians 2, and, and suffering for his sake, Philippians 2.1, if there's any encouragement, it's kind of a, like a, almost a sarcastic word. Do you understand how encouraging, there, how encouraging it is in Christ? And encouragement is, the, is that same word for exhortation and prophecy. And spiritual gifts, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, what's he say? Prophecy is for edification, exhortation, and comfort. He's talking about strengthening us to be able to keep going in the faith. And then the verse that Jim quoted about, does anybody have a word, a prophecy, a revelation? It should be all for edification, to build up the church, being built up into a holy temple. And he goes in chapter 15 into the resurrection. It's linked. The strengthening of brothers is to be faithful to death under the resurrection. If there's any encouragement of Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, Together, You see that togetherness? We can't be a lone soldier and make it. We can't be the lone ranger and make it. We need each other. It's always about a corporate witness. It's always about a corporate worship and a corporate prayer that the Bible's talking about. It's just our American culture that's taught us to be individualistic and to think individualistic. And, it, and that goes deep. It seems surfacy, but it really goes deep. How about confession of sin? We think about God, or we think about the hang-ups of a confessional sometimes. You know, having to go to a priest and only he can pardon kind of mindset. But confession of sin can't just be to God. Because we'll deceive ourselves. We'll hide from... Um, People knowing about it, we'll hide it, we'll stuff it, we'll find ways to justify things we're dealing with. I have a friend that, he's telling me that he has about five guys he talks to, but he's being convicted of it because he sees it as a pitching rotation in his deception. You don't always have a pitcher, you know, in baseball they rotate a pitcher. Pitcher pitches every few games. He kind of feels like he does that sometimes with his addictions that he's confessing. He'll confess it to one and then they'll be like, okay, I'm praying for you. And then he won't confess it to him for a long time. And he'll confess it to somebody else. And there's gaps in between his confessions with people so that they don't really know when he's struggling so he feels like he can hide things and he's realizing the deception of it. 
So even when we have confession for each other, there's deception that comes in. I can't believe how many people that I've known in the last 10 years now, I could count, I think, six friends that I know of, that I knew well, that knew the Lord, that loved the Lord, that experienced things from God, that were prophesying, were getting revelation, were loving Him evidently with their lives, that right now are not walking with Him. In fact, they're running away from Him. And two of them were from a great deception over their marriage. The husband struggled with pornography, and the wife was quick to call it adultery, and give him no chance. And now, I don't want to be a vic- have a victim mentality for the husband, because clearly there was already something going on on the husband's side, or the wife and the husband wouldn't have such a division where she would actually just so quickly want to divorce him. Okay? She had an issue clearly. Evidently, we can see that. But we don't see the issue that the husband had, evidently. But clearly it's a two-way street. But all that to say, what a deception to think that because a man comes forth struggling with pornography, that he's in adultery, completely given to it, and doesn't care about the marriage. When we know, the reality is that every man has that kind of a struggle in some degree. See, the issue is, do we even know how weak we are? Do we even know how desperate we are for God's grace every moment? Are we afraid to confess that we're sinners as Christians? Come on. And if we are, then we're starting to swerve away from what Christianity is. We're starting to walk away from Jesus. Becoming a Christian doesn't make you this immediately squeaky clean. There's no such thing as instantaneous sanctification until the resurrection day. That's my point. When Jesus puts incorruptible upon us, Otherwise, it's not by grace. Otherwise, it was like by grace, and then Jesus winked and said, now you can work hard and stay in the race according to your efforts. But if it's really by grace, it confronts every form of self-righteousness. I'll let Paul show us this now. Let's move in. So, Philippians chapter 2. Look what he says. Just read through with me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Ouch. Nothing. Nothing from selfish ambition, preserving your reputation, or vain conceit. Look at me. Look how good I am. Nothing. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Wow. That's radical love. I love that that word radical means to the root. Root or root? What is it down here? Root. Root. To the root. To me, root is what you do at a football game, but anyway. So, radical means to go to the root. Nobody ever went to the root. Root, root. To the root, but Jesus. He's the only one that went to the root of the matter. And he shows it right here. That our only hope for deliverance from self-righteousness, arrogance, corruptedness, sin of any definition, any way... Is complete death. The only way that we could ever be delivered from sin is death. See, God subjected the creation, starting with man, the crown of creation, to the curse. In hope, Romans 8. 
That's the point of Romans 8. In hope. The best way that God could ever bless humanity was to curse them. If God didn't curse us, we'd be eating from that tree of life in our corrupted state forever. If God didn't put that angel there in his mercy to guard the way, we'd still be in the tree of knowledge, good, and evil forever in our corrupted state, and we'd forever be outside of the blessing of God. The only way to embrace this blessing is to know that he's cursed us. And Jesus dying on that cross as a curse, as the representative of humanity, calls us to the only way that we can be delivered from the curse. We typically quote that verse and we think, ah, oh, yes, Jesus. And that's only part of the truth. We're too quick to be relieved of the curse. Because we think the curse is Satan's work. Because we're thinking of like superstition and voodism and voodoo and voodoo, not voodoo, voodoo and all the other places that, that put spells and curses on people. That's not what a biblical curse is. A biblical curse is very simple. It's A, B, C. It's 1 plus 1 equals 2. If you obey, all these blessings will come upon you. If you disobey, all these curses will overtake you. Who is the author of the curse? God. Does calamity happen? Did not the Lord do it? That word is raw. It means both evil and destruction. It means, it's from the sun god, raw. Ramesses, you know, in Egypt. And that word in the Hebrew, the, the word evil or destruction, it says the Lord created both calamity, raw, and light. You see, evil is the result of the curse. The curse is actually a result of evil. But God's sovereign hand is the one who put the curse on humanity. Evil was breaking away from God's design. The only way for humans to understand how to come back to God's design is suffering under the curse. God promised that farming would stink ever since the curse happened. That giving birth would be painful. But he also promised that there would come a day where the serpent would be crushed. But, the only way that we can come under God's full blessing is to subject ourselves to God's curse. Or to recognize God subjected us to the curse and hope. Our weakness, our suffering, our inability is an opportunity to treasure His grace. To really understand His grace. The abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will cause us to reign with Christ in the age to come. That's the key. Grace strengthens us 
to suffer well. Suffering well strengthens us with grace. And that same grace calls us to suffer well. And it's this continual process of God, in His mercy and grace, revealing to us that there's no self-effort that could give an ounce toward our perfection coming about, or our blessing being full. Now the cross is the way toward perfection. It's the path to perfection. For Jesus, He wasn't perfected until He was raised. And it's the same way for us. Now, in this life, we could have what we would call figurative deaths and resurrections. I mean, the path of life is a continual, you know, dying to this age and coming into fellowship in the Holy Spirit, growing in fellowship. The down payment of the Holy Spirit, the first fruits, the seal, the taste of the age to come. Provoking us to lay our life down. To increase in fellowship with Him. To fellowship with Jesus. I'm going to let Paul finish it. One of these days. So Paul exhorts us in a very practical level. Regard others as more important than yourself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interest. But also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Who although He existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. He willingly laid aside his privileges and became like us in every way. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, are you familiar with Romans seven eighteen? I know that in me there is no good thing. That is in my flesh. The desire is there, but the doing is not. Paul was recognizing his need for the cross and his condemnation from the law. That the law showed him that he didn't have anything in his flesh, flesh as in human ability, to be able to carry out the desire that was in his heart, made in the image of God, to want to be pleasing to God. Everybody wants to be pleasing to God. It's just they want to find their own way to do it, and they, don't, they might not want to call it God. Unbelievers are trying to be pleasing to God, ignorant. That's why... Humanism has morals, and atheism has morals, and you can't deny that they have morals. They're, they're silly ones, but they're morals. What they think is good and right. And when you think something's good and right, you, consider, you have to consider that there's something that's absolutely good and absolutely right. 
or nothing really matters. You have to be amoral if you're going to be consistent with humanism or atheism. You have to say that there's no such thing as good or evil. Their whole mindset is that of human progress or whatever is not going to survive and get in the way, get rid of it. How wicked is that? And somehow they call that moral. The elderly, the handicapped, etc. will be gone because they're not the fittest. You can get into racism and everything with that. That's, that's the route of humanism and atheism. But they have morals. They're made in the image of God and they want to be pleasing to God, though they would say there's no God. Because the law, like Romans says, is on their heart and in their conscience bearing witness. At one point, accusing them that they're wrong. And at the other point, excusing them by their man-made morals. Because God didn't reveal through creation, you see, that He is a powerful God through what He's made. But they won't glorify Him as God. It's that simple. They believe that there has to be a God, inherently, because God made them that way. But they deny him, they suppress the truth and their unrighteous desires to live a certain way. So their morals are set up so that they don't have to live how they don't want to live. But they wouldn't call them morals, per se, because they don't want to imply there's absolute morality. It's up to you. Just, it's so simple. They're, they're just saying, I don't want God. I know there's a God, but I don't want Him. That's it. But for us as a believer... We realize that there's no good in us. But here's the key. Do we come to terms that that's a perpetual reality? As a believer, the tension is that we won't be righteous until Jesus returns. On the other hand, the only way we're righteous is because Jesus became righteousness for us and He recognizes us as the righteousness of God. But don't let that mistaken that we've completely come into righteousness and we're fully sanctified in, in His grace. Yes. Because you yelled at your wife the other day. It's that simple. Because you, dis you dishonored your parents the other day. Because you gossiped. Boy, and gossip is such a subtle snake. I realize that in my own life more and more. Constantly find myself going back in conversations going... Now, was that gossip? Was there really a good reason I was saying that? It wasn't just that I was concerned for them and I want to pray for them. I mean, I could say that, but why was it really necessary? Did it help me feel better about me? Or was I proving myself to that person that I'm talking to that I know about this because I'm spiritual and that person needs this and we should talk to them? You know, it's, very, it's a very fine line what gossip is. Because, really, I mean, think, can't God take care of our brother? That's what Paul is saying when he says, believe the best, hope the best, cover sin, um, don't take a record of wrongs into account. I mean, marriages break down on that very purpose, that, that very reality, I mean. Love is long-suffering. That's the first thing Paul says. In other words, it suffers long, and other people's need to change. So believe the best, hope the best. Cover a multitude of sins. Yes. Have such a love for each other that it's like you don't have sin. That your fellowship would grow so strong you cover each other. As though there's no sin. Because you're fellowshipping around Jesus. So Paul says, 
both to will and to work. The will and the work comes when we tremble to work out our salvation. Because we don't have the ability to work out our salvation, so we say, God, there's no good thing in me. Would you put it in me and work it through me all the way through? And how is the way that it happens? What Paul just broke down, the obedience to the point of death, the instrument of the cross in our heart, not just on the hill. That's what A.W. Tozier said, the cross on the hill must become the cross in the heart or there's no vital connection to God. And our danger as believers is that we have many ways where we move away from the cross, where we come into bootstrap sanctification. I'm going to do this. We come into sanctification through prayer, through fasting, or through whatever effort. Sanctification through evangelism. Sanctification, you fill it in, through holding meetings. Sanctification through whatever. You know, here's the point. We have so many ways of dressing up our Christianity in religious clothing, and all the while, inside... We're not having a life connection with God. And the life connection comes through embracing the way of the cross, which equals suffering, which equals preparing to lay our life down. And this is what Paul's getting at. He says, do all all things without grumbling or disputing. You see that? Only the cross can do that. He just said, don't do anything with selfish ambition or vain conceit. And now he says, don't do anything with grumbling or disputing. What's the work of the cross but love? What's love but thinking of others more important than yourself? Laying aside your ego and things that hurt others. It's called sin. And then he says that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. This is beautiful. In, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as stars in the universe or lights in the world, holding fast or holding forth the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. So you see this? It's talking really simple. Let's take it really simple. Jesus died on a cross to show us the selflessness of God and our call to mirror His image, to come back into His image through that same cross so that we could actually have real fellowship and loving each other and not grumble so that when the world sees us, we're holding forth the word of life so easy, but so hard. It's too simple. We want to do a bunch of outward things to guard ourselves and shield ourselves from the cross's application to our heart. This is all Paul's saying throughout Philippians. He's in prison, and some people don't like Paul's gospel and its repercussions of suffering, so they're preaching out of envy. A different gospel. Maybe what they're doing is saying, you know, Paul, he's a little extreme about this suffering thing. Just be a good person now that God loves you. Whatever it was they were doing, they were protecting their ego. Because it says in Philippians 1 that some preach Christ. This is what I'm referring to if you're not quite understanding. Some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but 
the other do it out of love, knowing that I'm in prison for the sake of the gospel. I'm in obedience to God. And the result of obedience to God is suffering. Peter said, don't let anybody suffer as a meddler, and gossip, or greedy, or whatever. If you suffer for doing wrong, okay, that's one thing, that's a consequence. But if you suffer for doing what's right, then trust your soul to a faithful shepherd in doing what's right. In other words, let him carry you through to keep doing what's right in the midst of opposition that's hard to obey in. It's that simple. So Paul is saying, some people are preaching the gospel of self-preservation because they think that, well, God, God disciplined Paul because he's off. He's preaching this gloomy gospel of suffering. doesn't make any sense. But then some understood that it was a result of his obedience. So he's saying now to them, embrace this gospel that brings suffering. And look, what he, look how he goes on. It, it's, just, it's so beautiful because there's a theme here. It's a big email. All these chapter headings weren't in Paul's email on the parchment on the scroll. It was one long email. Okay, It's long for us because we're still dull of hearing and understanding. You see? It's long for us because our paradigm is so often mixed up, right? Don't you agree? I mean, if Hebrews is a, a short exhortation, according to the writer, then Philippians is a very short writing. And if it's short, it's because it had a purpose. And if the Bible is relevant for today, then we can get this short purpose. This short main thing he's addressing. And what he's addressing here is self-preservation. Now, let's see how that plays out. So Paul says, after talking about holding fast the word, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. In other words, what he's saying is, if my witness is complete and I'm about to be martyred in this prison, I'm excited. He was still five to seven years out from his actual martyrdom. But he was so prepared by the gospel, the true gospel, that embraces suffering as a gift, that he had joy about. There's something about embracing God's way that gives you fellowship with him. I mean, it's, it seems like a simple math equation, but we make it really hard. I love God. I hate sin. I'm going to suffer because everybody in the world loves sin. Oh, I love God because I'm in agreement with Him. And what's He put in our heart? But the Holy Spirit of joy. Yes. Joy that doesn't make any sense. Yes. No wonder G.K. Chesterton said what he said. Absurdly happy. Completely fearless. And all is in trouble. Of course. How will the world know if it doesn't have a suffering church? before its view, that they must choose the gospel. If we're pimping ourselves out, <laughs> what does that tell the world? You see what I mean? Yes. Now by pimping yourself out, I don't mean have nice things, but I mean indulge and live that life. Of course you can have nice things. But what's the posture of your life? Is there generosity? Is there tenderness toward opposition? 
is their boldness to confront with the truth. And they all come from the same thing. Are we confronting the self-preservation of the fear of man? It's that easy. So Paul's saying, I could die, but I'm excited. Because it's for your faith. This is God's economy of grace. Martyrdom. Being a faithful witness, even to the point of death. Following the Savior. Jesus already atoned, but now we propagate to the world. We display to the world. We hold forth the word of life. So, word of life. So then he says, and you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. You see that? We exchange joy when we're in fellowship with the true gospel of suffering. The cross actually prepares our capacity to enlarge, to receive the Spirit. Spirit wasn't given until Jesus was glorified for a reason. But now when Jesus is glorified through our weakness and suffering, He puts His grace and His power upon us in ever-increasing glory to suffer in ever-increasing suffering unto ever-increasing glory and joy until the resurrection comes when He wipes away every tear. When we receive our inheritance and we lack nothing ever again. And He really gives us His righteousness. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. And He talks about Timothy seeking the interests of Christ and the furtherance of the Gospel. And then in verse 25, He brings up this brother Epaphroditus. My brother, my fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you and all, you all, and was distressed because, of, because you had heard he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death... But here's the key. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. You see, God will only give us what he's prepared us to take in the moment. If God just quickly said, all of you, if you love me, be burned at the stake. Many would be offended and would not understand what in the world he's talking about. It doesn't make any sense at all, out of context. But God prepares us to lay our life down. Yes. Because first he's got to start with just the simple reality that we like sin. And if we don't come to terms with the fact that we like sin, we don't see the justice of God and vindicate his wisdom with the way our life goes. Yes. We Instead we, we think, well God, you just love me, so I'll live this way. I'll do what I want. It doesn't really matter. But as God wins our heart to himself and shows us how worthy he is and how worth it it is to, to serve him, it becomes a no-brainer. It becomes very applicable because we start to deal with the desires that are anti-obedience and anti-suffering. It's wild. It's crazy. It's paradoxical. It, 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 it boggles our minds. But it makes sense according to His Word. So then he says, God didn't allow him to die that I wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. And then he commends him in verse 30 that he was close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And then Paul says, finally, brothers, I rejoice. And I don't care that I'm repeating the same safeguard. There are dogs, evil workers, the false circumcision. You know, the Jews that believed in a legalistic righteousness. For we are the true circumcision. Verse 3. He's speaking of himself and the other Jews that actually understood that circumcision wasn't just physical in the flesh, but outward in the heart. 
as you see in Romans 2, because the covenant with Israel still stands. And those who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, in circumcision, in human ability that the legalistic Jews did. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And now he speaks of being circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless by man's standard. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying all that legalistic Judaism that I was following, it's a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, that's the first step of suffering. That all becomes rubbish in light of Him. And we begin to lay down all our sin as it's confronted by Him unto what? Verse 9. That we may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And now, instead of making it just this easy believism, this thing where it's just like, just believe, you know, in an in intellectual way, Paul says, here's the key though, here's the instrument, it's the cross, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. How? Through the fellowship of his sufferings, so fellowship with him in suffering, being conformed to his death, Philippians 2. He's just building upon obedience to the point of death through the cross. And now it's our propagation. He made propitiation or satisfaction in the blood of atonement. He, re- he took our place to forgive us. But now he calls us to follow in suit in obedience to him. We call that propagation propagate or to spend your life in light of something and display what he did through our life for the salvation and mercy to be displayed before unbelievers in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead now either Paul is talking about some elite group only certain people or he's talking about the reality that justification by faith calls us to endure by faith. That if it's all by grace, then it's not of our work. And if it's not of our work, then our works of righteousness have to keep being confronted by a cross that speaks that we can't offer any of our works of righteousness. And then by the cross, the actual works of righteousness will come out of our life by grace. But to the degree that we imagine our work and our effort and our ability have anything to do with it, It's self-righteousness. And Paul recognizes that well. And he wants to attain to the resurrection, which has to come about from God. And the only way it comes about from God is when it's a righteousness by faith. And if it's a righteousness by faith in God, it's a righteousness, faith away from you. (laughs) No longer trusting in you. Like he's saying, he comes dumb. I mean, he called it dumb. He didn't say you need a band-aid. He said you need open heart surgery. If we see it as a band-aid, and we do in many ways, 
that we don't know the toxin that it carries. One sin leads to another. So last night I said, God doesn't care about your sin. And tonight I say, God cares about your sin. What a contradicting preacher. But he does. Because he cares about you. That's the point. Because he knows you and you don't. Truly the heart is deceptive. And wicked above all things. You say, but we have a new heart. Well, what scripture are you quoting? Because if you're quoting Ezekiel 36, it's talking about the house of Israel. He'll put a heart of flesh in them. And then he'll resurrect them. That's a whole other story. In fact, what I think I'm going to do is just hammer this last piece here. And then we will go into a time of discussion. So you guys can have a time of just whatever, however long you feel, Jim, that we should. Or you give me the heads up on what you think. But not that I've already obtained, Paul says. Obtained to what? The resurrection and the righteousness by faith. Or become perfect. But I press on. You know what that word press on also translated, translates into? Persecute. It's the same word. To press on is to persecute. To persecute is to chase. Paul used to chase, as he said in the first couple of verses of this chapter, Christians persecuting the church. Zeal for persecuting the church. He's got a new zeal. Not finding a righteousness of his own. But pressing into the knowledge of Jesus. His righteousness. This is incredible. And how he nails it here makes it so clear. He says, I press on in order to what? To lay hold of that for which he initiated. He laid hold of me. He initiated because I would never approach God in my lack of confidence. In my corrupt state. I don't seek God. He sought me first. And his resurrection that has laid hold of me by the Holy Spirit will complete me as I press to lay hold of that same thing by letting go of my righteousness and my ability. I'm laying a hold of it by grace, by the Spirit, through faith. I'm laying hold of the resurrection. Everything around may fall, but I won't let go of my hope. Everything around me may fall, but I will never despair. Because I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living, and I will see the goodness of God forever sealed in the resurrection. I'm holding to hope. It's a blessed hope. But why do you hope for what you already see or have? But if you hope for what you don't yet have in full, what do you do with it? You eagerly wait for it. Faith is the evidence of things unseen, the conviction of things not yet seen, the hope of things not yet. Something like that. Same idea. So, then he says, Brothers, I don't regard myself as laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, my way of pursuit and my everyday 
laying aside of my filthy rags, day by day by day by day, holding on to the cross. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. And therefore, verse 15, as many as us are mature or perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, in anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. So in this process, God's going to expose the right kind of attitude, the right kind of affection. The right kind of mindset. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. Don't move away from that hope in the gospel. And join following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. There are people that think they're believers, but they're an enemy of the cross of Christ because they're basing their faith on righteousness in the law. And their effort, whose end is destruction, whose God is really their appetite. They're reinterpreting the law to show that they can keep it by their effort because they don't see the majesty of the law and how it shuts their mouth. They put out religious ideas of how to obey God and be pleasing to Him by human standards, thus lowering the law. So they can live by their own appetites. That's the motive. And their glories and their shame, they set their mind on earthly things. But our citizenship's in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power He has even to subject all things to Himself. Now, does it make sense if Paul says, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me? In the next chapter. Does that make sense now? If it's for the gospel, through obedience that brings on suffering... And calls you to persevere in obedience in suffering. Then doing all things through Christ who strengthens you has to do with not some kind of uh, uh, God applauding whatever you're doing in life. In this, you know that's not what it means. Like I can run the Olympic race because Christ strengthens me. Now doesn't mean that Christ doesn't care about what you're doing, but the context is through Christ. I can be content if I have or if I don't because I'm living for the gospel and I know he provides for me when I live for the gospel. So, anyway, enough of that. So, what are we thinking? Amen. It's interesting. I was just, I mean, Jeremy's sharing all this stuff. I was just thinking, this this feels like our Sunday morning, hey, right? This is what we were talking about, this blessed hope. In fact, I got my notes right here saying things. And, you know... Every time I look at um, scriptures that, are, that have been so so real for me for so many years, I see them in a different way now. You know, it's like it jumps off the page to me of getting ready, preparation. And, um, you know, you just read it here, um, that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. You know, the word, we are in the process of going forward, looking forward, pressing on. That's what he's talking about. It's the eye on the prize thing. And, you know, I don't, I don't you know, really um, follow the church calendar and that sort of thing. But as it turns out, yesterday was the first day of Advent. Hmm. And Advent actually is... Um, the coming of Christ. It's a celebration of the coming of Christ. 
course, it's for Christmas. And the church celebrates it in the context of a baby in a manger. You know, and so there's this continual looking back, reflecting back. But what about the advent of the coming of the Christ as a king? <laughs> Victorious king. Yeah. Amen. And, and that's a different context. Because the hope comes from what lies ahead. It's not what's already happened. And I'm not trying to say that we don't appreciate what Jesus did on the cross. We absolutely did. We, we, we'd be nowhere and have nothing without it. But our, our hope is pressing forward. Paul says, I press on. I press forward. I'm looking ahead. Jesus said, for the joy set before me, I endure the cross. In other words, he's looking on the other side of the cross. He understands that he's got to go through the cross, but he's looking to the other side and saying, for the joy set before me on that other side, I do this and I see you in eternity mm -hmm. with me in my resurrection. Yeah. So amen, that's good. I think there's some people here that have some really hard questions. Yeah. I think that... Um, I think it's a good time for us to ask the really hard questions about this. And uh, we're in an urgent time, and I think we need to learn how to, as the church, I could see expressions in this room on faces, and usually when I preach them, I can read faces pretty well. And I, I saw at least three, four winces from a couple different, at least a couple different people during this discussion. And usually what that means is either a combination of or one thing either either ouch this really hurts or I don't agree or typically a mixture of both and that's okay that's good that's actually good because the truth is nobody wants to suffer nobody does nobody nobody wants to suffer and and want that to be the way that God has designed us to live life and nobody Another thing that nobody wants is for hell to be eternal torment. We want it to be annihilation, right? We want it to be, boom, puff, people are just gone, okay? We're human beings. If that was true, I would rejoice and be like, yes, that's good. Just wipe them out, God, because why would people have to? Doesn't that seem sadistic and, you know? So when we look at these kinds of things in the Word... Our human tendency is to want to disagree because we know the implications in one sense, but on the other sense, we're ignorant of the implications because in one sense, it sounds gloomy and, and, and hopeless, but on the other side, in the context of what scripture actually says, God can actually make it enjoyable to suffer. So I, I just want a discussion. I think, this, how long do we want to go? What do we want to do? Yeah, we've got 10.50. Yeah? We finish up by 9, before 9? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, honestly, here's, here's the spectrum. Questions, comments, anxieties, frustrations, and objections. Any of those. Questions, comments, anxieties, frustrations, and objections. All of those are welcome. All of those. We are the body of Christ that we should be able to discuss all of those things without 
feeling like we're doing something wrong. <laughs> so again, uh, questions, comments, anxieties, frustrations, and objections. Let's get something going. Go for it. Um, I think it was like true revelation, at least for me, when you were talking about when Christ wins your heart, that's when you actually have, like, you're able to understand the concept of suffering and seeing that, yeah, your sin, you're able to see, okay, I love God so much that I am willing to die for Him. And I think a lot of people in church today, they don't they don't cover that. It's like, no one wants to talk about martyr part. No one wants to talk about you. It, it could be a possibility that you are going to die for the Lord, and that is a joy. Like, it's hard to understand that's a joy that I'm going to die for God. And that's a privilege that's a gift. I think that's really hard. And even for myself, like, I'm not it. I want to be to that point, but that point is scary to admit, like, okay, I'm okay with dying for the Lord. That is good. I can't, like you said, he, he, um, he brings that, he puts that in you. But right. it's hard to understand that, that you will have joy and that, that it's a gift. It's, like, kind for of sure. scary when you think of it. Yeah. It's good, and you, and you think of, here's something about that too, I was thinking, when you think of Paul, typically we kind of deify Paul, don't we? We kind of make him like this giant in the faith. So what happens, instead of embracing what the Bible would say, apostolic um, standard, we call it apostolic seclusion. We kind of write it off as it's apostolic seclusion, like, well, Paul was supposed to suffer that way, of course. Well, he's crazy. Isn't Paul crazy? Man, he's a beast. He made it through prison. When Paul's saying this is the standard, it's the apostolic standard, not apostolic seclusion. And that's part of our issue. We're already drowned in our cultural haze of, of luxury. So why would we want to believe in suffering at all for us? And when Paul already did it, you know, you see, we keep, we keep it at arm's length. Jesus, first, we, either we say Jesus did it, so we don't have to. Or we say, well, the apostles had to to establish a church, but we don't have to. But it's just, that's, that's, that's our excuse to not look into it. So anyway, now, even though I've been very bold and convicted in my stance on this, I want you to feel the freedom to rifle objections. Really, I'm serious. It's for our own heart. It's good. So even though, you know, the tendency is, well, here, he's boldly con in conviction. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say it's wrong then. You know, who cares? Have you encountered people who really object to the fact that you know, the gospel calls the suffering? Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that, that, to me, is an incredible belief to hold. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is go out on the street and just start talking about Jesus and you're going to get some some form. Yep. You know, I mean, you may not get caught to death, right. but some you level. get like, you're a real idiot, you know? I mean, so what are these people, you know, where, where, are, where are they coming from? On well, here's stuff? the simplest thing that, that we, can, we can look at. It comes from an understanding, um, an overemphasis on the kingdom being here. It comes from this mindset that the, and it comes from a, to, to truthfully, it starts with Israel. Everything starts with Israel. If we understand that the people of Israel were an example for us to whom the ends of the ages have come so we stand firm and don't fall, we learn from their mistakes, and God didn't replace the covenant with them, 
with the church and absorb Israel into it. It connects to the fact that what Jim was saying, Jesus came to save, not to destroy, not to condemn. And Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, preach the gospel to the poor, and declare the favorable year of the Lord. Pause. Then the day of vengeance of of God will come in His second advent. So what people don't realize is that we're doing the same thing that the Jews did and having a hard time receiving Jesus' first advent. They wanted David, a Messiah, a non-divine Messiah, is what they're expecting, to come and take over the kingdom. In a sense, that's exactly what Kingdom Now is doing. They're saying, we want a non-divine Messiah to establish the kingdom here. But Us. Us. Right. But they think that the finished work of the cross is finished with us. They, they reinterpret the cross because they reinterpret Israel and they reinterpret the, old, the New Testament. Some people would say, well, Jesus said this, but Paul said that. It's a gradual reinterpretation. But some would say, well, Israel was judged and forever the testimony of God's judgment, he cast them off, and now the church is all that matters. You see, it's just a reinterpretation of the plan of God. Success rate, when you really encounter someone who wants to talk with you about that, do you, do you ever, you know... Well, there's quite the spectrum of that belief. There's a very small, tiny little expression of the church that says, already but not yet. And already but not yet, honestly, already redefines the kingdom. What's already here? The Holy Spirit. The down payment. The taste of the age to come. What's the kingdom? A Jewish man on a physical throne in a geographical city with an ethnic people ruling the earth, being the light to the rest of the nations. It's that simple. But when the kingdom becomes within you, that people interpret Jesus' words as within you meaning in your heart, when he's rebuking Pharisees, who didn't believe in him. And he's talking about the kingdom will be in the earth. Daniel 2, smoking the statue of the kingdoms of this world forever. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of, his, of God and his Christ in Revelation. When the kingdom is no longer geographical and physical, but ethereal and spiritual, then it's a step toward that direction. But some people have gone as far as to say, We're expanding the kingdom. We are the kingdom. We bring in the kingdom. And where that goes in its extreme is Jesus doesn't need to come back. We'll take a human Messiah. Me. It's called the Messiah complex. It's self-righteousness in a spiritual way instead of a legalistic way. We could. When, when they're on the far spectrum of it, yeah. Now, there's, they're all our brothers, but to what point? Yeah. Will they be our brothers when the tribulation increases? Well, you know, if suffering comes and they're not pressing on, right. there it is. You know, um, That's it. They're, 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 their mindset's already not prepared to encounter suffering. For sure. So they are way behind. And, yep. You know, it's... it's so here's a perfect example then for our application. How do we suffer for them? Just you know, you just got that groan. Come on, guys. Uh-huh. You know, you got that that 
Pray that their eyes would be open. Absolutely. Revelation, wisdom, revelation. Yeah, Wake prayer. up. <laughs> I think it's an attitude of the heart. It is, isn't it? In, in general. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people think they're suffering. Because, and they should be suffering because they're the creeps. Christian creeps sometimes, you know. They, they, and then people come after them. And you, like you said, it's, it's you know... Uh, how do we do this? How do, how do you speak to somebody? Are you condemning whatever? You know, and it all comes down to an attitude of your heart, which is worship. Yeah. And really, if we look at uh, anything we're going through, it's an act of worship onto the Lord. Mm-hmm. So if anything comes my way, if I have the right attitude of heart, I'm doing this, this you know, with this person, loving whatever I'm doing, speaking however, but an attitude of heart of, Lord, I'm doing this as an act of worship onto you. That's right on. I mean, when you said that, it's just clear what Paul say remains, faith, hope, and love. Faith in what? The cross, the blood atonement. Hope that he'll resurrect us so we love well from the right attitude. We'll lay our life down. So, you know, the people that you're talking about, if we really hold to faith and hope, and it's not just a theological argument that we're right about, then we'll love them. But if we got it right, <laughs> if it's about us having it right, it's the us and them. We're the three percent righteous, and they're the ninety-seven percent that are um, arrogant. Then they're going to see us as arrogant, and they're just going to solidify their belief in delusion. But if we really believe that they're being deluded right now, that there's a deception, then all the more we need to learn how to love them well. And be very careful not to slander anybody that teaches that. And not even talk about them that teach that. Just talk about the teaching and what it results in. You know, you don't start out with this arrogant thing when you're talking to somebody. But right. it, just in the passion, right. it, you, I hear you come across wrong. And that, you know, it's like, come on guys, I, you know, I mean. Yep. Uh, and so a lot of times... It, you know, just your attitude comes across like, you know, I know it all. But that's, that, you know, right. that's not it. It's yeah, that's the process let's, of... Let's come together. Let's, let's hammer it out until, you know... Sure. So, right, for sure. And we should be able to have a healthy debate with them mm-hmm. um, in the right manner. But, you know, we know. <laughs> we can come across in the right. wrong manner. Yeah. Because we're, we're, so, we're prone to gather information yes. and call that our obedience when obedience doesn't come until that information actually touches your heart. And when your heart's touched by that, you're touched for them. And so, you know, boldness is not brashness, nor is 
compassion, naivety. Um, but you're living before them. And you, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I know. I, I know my process of brashness. Risky. Risky. Exactly. Well, you remember, Susan, we shared this facility with a group yeah. for a while that, I mean, had pretty much that issue and wouldn't hear. I mean, yeah. how many times we went over through it? It's a lack of faith, is what people would say. You know, Job gave way to fear. That's why he suffered so much. That's the mentality. Yeah. Yeah, you're suffering. See, and that's what that is what um, was indicative of where we came out. We came out of the word of faith type of thing, mm-hmm. before, you know, four years ago, and. Uh, you weren't living in the victory if you were suffering. You know, you were in some kind of sin. Yeah. And that's why you were you were suffering, you know. And uh, so, you know, thank God I've got set free from that. That gave me some revelation, actually, about this thing of, of suffering. Is when you say that, you know, the, the issue is, well, if you're suffering, it's because you sin. Well, no, we're suffering because we're still in this world. And so the fellowship of suffering is God hemming us into himself. Whether we're suffering for sin or not, yes. <laughs> Are we suffering for sin? Yes. Are we suffering for sin? No. <laughs> you see? <laughs> we're suffering because we're obeying. And as we obey, we're going to learn that there's sin that we need to repent of. And we're suffering in this age, and we're enduring suffering as discipline because God accepts us as sons. Not because we're proving to him that we're a son, but because he's proving to us that he's our father. That's the key. Yeah. So, about a little long survey on the the old man. Uh huh. Born again, new creation, spirit, soul, body, all the way through. Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Well, the old man is subjected to the cross. Now, when we hear that word new creation, think ahead. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Okay? So, new creation. What is that now? We're born again. That's the Holy Spirit in regenerating us, giving us what the Holy Spirit, or what the Scripture says the first fruits, the seal, the down payment, the first installment. The taste of the age to come, the good Holy Spirit, and the and good Word of God, partaking of the Holy Spirit. So every language of the Holy Spirit, then you have fruit, and you have gifts, and you have power. All of that is our sustenance in this age, so that we can partake of that age. So the old man is only subjected when we're under the obedience of the cross. When we walk in the flesh... We're not under the cross, we're under the law. When we walk in self-effort or the works of sin, we're walking according to the law. See, this is the point of the law. The law was not the bad part of the old covenant. The people are always the issue. The law came in to reveal death. You know, before Moses, death reigned. But when the law came, 
It revealed death from sin. So when we sin as a believer, we're walking in the law. Whether it's self-righteousness and religion, an outward effort, boasting in something we shouldn't apart from the cross, something that's not the cross, or choosing sin. Because when we choose sin, the law gives us condemnation, right? But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death. But when we walk in the flesh, we incur condemnation from the devil and from, from the law. Because we're disobeying it. Because James said if you keep the whole law and break one point, you break it all. He's trying to tell Christians how to understand how to live by the law of liberty and generosity. You know, extending mercy to people because you've received mercy from God. You've understood mercy. So the, 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 um, the old man no longer has the power to direct your life. So suddenly sin is much more um, held accountable to Christians. Even though Paul says in Romans, what Paul says in Romans seven is, "I do what I don't want to do," and many will say, "Well, that's before he was a believer." No, that's coming to be a believer and realizing where the struggle comes from. Because I no longer do it, but sin that dwells in me does it. Because he ends that chapter with, "Who will deliver me from this body of death?" And then he says, praise be to God, or thanks be to God, grace is the word. Grace be to God. It's God's grace that will one day deliver me from this body of death through the resurrection. Because then he says, on the one hand, I'm obeying God and I delight in the law. On the other hand, I'm serving the flesh. And then he says, there's no condemnation. And then he says, by the Spirit, we obey the righteousness in the law. See, see, we subject the old man by the cross so the spirit can give us life. And the law prepares us to embrace the cross which prepares us to receive the spirit which prepares us to embrace the cross which prepares us to receive the spirit and when we sin the law condemns us to bring us back to the cross so we take on the spirit to take up the cross. So the law keeps confronting sin in our inner man. So we hold to the cross. And don't move away from the cross and become an enemy of it and hold to our self-righteousness in any way. See that? You see that beautiful picture of God keeping us hemmed in for fellowship with Him? Yeah. Um, you hear it many times in the Psalms how David talks about God's a refuge. And so how does that relate to like suffering? Um, when Perfect. Good question. The issue with the Psalms is our first decision to interpret them through a devotional, a personal devotion, when we don't go back historically or look ahead future. Because Psalms are about King David, mostly, and other people speaking of the nation of Israel and his responsibility as king, his enemies coming against him, his failures and sin, his boasting in God's mercy, right? Over and over and over again. But you see Israel is central in there. Because the purpose of the ages will come through the vehicle of Israel. So when you read things like God is a refuge, you can connect it to the day of the Lord. I take refuge in the Lord. 
I take refuge in the Lord. When does he say that? When my enemies attack me. And my sin is more than the hairs of my head. But I take refuge in the mercy of the Lord. Over and over and over and over and over. So the Psalms, prophetic picture of the cross to come. Everything in the Psalms was before. It was a type and a shadow of what was going to come, right? The Old Testament was types and shadows of the substance, which is Christ, the Messiah, in the new, who then gave us his spirit. So when you read the Psalms now, they're relevant today. Many of the Psalms you read like, Jerusalem is the chief joy of all the earth, or the Lord comes to judge his people, or some of the Psalms you read a phrase, and it sounds like he's saying it happened right then. But that's prophetic language of the day of the Lord. It's as good as happened because God is faithful to bring it to pass. So through, yeah, huge part of it. And it's also the the wrath of God, yeah. where every high thing will be brought low. So because God in His patience gives us the cross to boldly approach God in our depraved condition, receive grace, to persevere, so that in that day he'll resurrect us instead of destroy us. See? Does this still kind of apply refuge? Now? Absolutely. Fellowship with him. There's a temporal reality. That's what David knew. That's why he could write about it. But he was looking ahead to trust God because he knew what the prophet said before him and in that time. It seems as though almost like just it's like looking at everything that, I mean, like, if we will, like, the suffering, in a sense, is the refuge, because the suffering is is the picture, or the, is the, the hit that we have intimacy with God, and like, in many ways, like, the suffering is the table of the Lord, yeah. because what did Jesus do in the table of the Lord? He broke the, be- the bread, and he gave the wine, which was just the picture of his body being broken, and like, mm-hmm. the blood being but it's like, I don't know, I think a lot of times we think that like being in refuge means like safety or like hiding in a cave but like it seems like every time people hide in caves God draws them out of the cave mm-hmm. and, 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 it's, and it's almost like I think I think that's the issue with the church in general is that is that they don't see suffering as fellowship or suffering as friendship mm-hmm. like me suffering is my friendship with Jesus in a sense like like Paul says in Philippians and I think we have that fear cause, because because goes back to that self-preservation or the, the fear of our image, yeah. the fear of what are people going to think. So, But when you, when you preach this gospel that the actual, your actual hiding place or your refuge is actually in the suffering, mm-hmm. th- then it's like, I don't know, there's, there's, like, there's like a whole, there's, just, there's a whole different picture there where it's like... Uh-huh. The t- Does that make sense for you? You hear what he's saying? Because if we don't suffer we'll put our hope in something that we shouldn't because we can't trust ourselves. But God's so good to expose that. And, and that's the thing. And it was interesting. Like, it makes sense. When we were praying, I said, like, man, I just feel like I see the table of the Lord. And I saw bread on the table. And what's, what's interesting to me is, like, that is the table of the Lord. It's yeah. Jesus breaking bread mm-hmm. and pouring wine. And then what, what happens now, though? We share in that. He breaks our body. Yeah. And, he, and we give our blood in that sense. We give our lives. And that's... And the, what is the table of the Lord? It's that Romans 12, being a living sacrifice. It's daily breaking bread. It's John 6. Yeah. Because he said, uh, what's the, they said, what's the work of God that we can work? Because he made miracle of bread. He said, believe in the one he sent to confront them in their self-righteousness and their 
not obeying him by faith. And then he went on to say, eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you'll have no part of me. But if you drink my blood and eat my flesh, I'll raise you up on the last day. So there's the sustenance, his fellowship in his, his table. It's interesting, I heard a friend of mine, he was teaching on that, on the table, like that, that whole thing of Jesus breaks some bread and he pours the wine to his mm-hmm. disciples as a picture of what was going to happen. And, and, and like what he's getting is like, every disciple confronts that. And he goes, and the only one that actually comes to the event dies a natural death, and other than Judas who hangs himself, but then all the other ones end up dying a martyr. <laughs> all of them actually experience That's the drinking of the bread and the drinking of the wine. And, and, and in many ways, that was the love of God for them. Like the love of God. Well, that's good. And it's like the love of God isn't always preservation. Uh-huh. Sometimes the love of God is sharing in, in the death of Jesus. And yep. it's, he shows his disciples and he says, "This is what like this is, this is the closest fellowship we're going to have on earth. The only one that comes to the actual event dies a natural death, but all of them share in his sufferings at some point." And it's like it's like you said that thing. Like I wrote it down on my phone. Is if we could actually see suffering as a gift, or even and it's, you know, Ryan was saying earlier about if we ask for the rain, it'll come. Like it's like the Lord showed me this. Like a lot of times, the suffering that we go through is intercession. That's like it's like it's seed to yeah. sow in many ways. And it's like suffering is actually like sowing into a cloud good. to make it rain. Because why suffering and the table of the Lord always leads to resurrection. And, and that's the thing. And it's like, and I think if we would find refuge, it's just being present with Jesus. And being present when Jesus is in suffering, then we would understand that, like, what it's really about is just walking with Jesus. It's like Psalm 23. It's either walking in green grass and quiet waters or the valley of the shadow of death. But it's all about being present to Him in yeah. every moment of life, you know? That's good, because when we follow Jesus, we're following Jesus. Yeah. Even though we take up a cross, deny ourselves, lose our life, we're following Jesus. Yeah. And, you know, James and John... And I'm, I'm sure we should probably close up here, but James and John, he said, uh, he, they said, um, we want to sit at your right and your left hand. And Jesus said, well, can you drink the cup and be baptized at my baptism? And they said, yeah. And he said, you will. But to sit at my right and left hand, if I told you that, you wouldn't persevere in the right way. <laughs> you would corrupt your ways and you would, you would live in the wrong motive for the reward. But because there's a reward that awaits that they don't know until they're counted faithful and worthy at the end, then they can't do it in self-righteousness. So that's what he says to us, that 